everybody. My name is Theo Fleury, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Happy Monday, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Let's get into it. Here are our sponsors. Welcome to the folks at HSI Group. They're your local oil field burners and combustion experts that can help make sure you have a compliant system working for you. The team also offers security, surveillance, and automation products for residential, commercial livestock, and agricultural applications. We use technology to give you peace of mind so you can focus on the things that truly matter. 3902 52nd Street, or give them a call, uh, give Brody or Kim a call at 306-825-6310. Lindsay Olin and team down at Can Do Auto and Lube, family owned and operated since 1984. A quick math tells me that's 36 years. If you uh, don't know that joke yet, go back a couple episodes, you'll understand. Looking <laughs> looking for an oil change, no appointment necessary. Quick lube bay uh, where you don't even have to leave your vehicle. Fully licensed for Alberta and SAS safety inspections. They aim to offer the best service experience possible and make it stress-free. If you haven't checked them out, stop in a day and see what you've been missing out on. 6001 63rd Ave or give them a call 780-875-7735. Stop in and visit Lauren and Gunner at Art and Soul for all your jersey framing picture needs. Uh, Gunner, you might ask. Well, Lauren tells me the story about what sets her apart from their competition is our computerized mat cutter. She calls him Gunner, spelt Gunnar. He's a Switzerland-made machine in the shop that honestly should be considered a co-worker. I may be the operator, but he does all the work. I figured since, you know, we got Theo Fleury on in the Battle of Alberta, I could talk about Calgary Flame things, or I can talk about all the things that she's done there, Edmonton Oilers. And, uh... She's got a, she showed me a pretty cool McDavid jersey that she did where uh, Gunner did all the etching in the background. It looks friggin' sweet. Um, or the man cave. She got showed me a picture of this guy who's got a man cave. And just imagine every jersey under the sun uh, of the Oilers. Unbelievable. She's done all the work. She's open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Give her a call, 780-808-6313 or stop in. 5016 39th Street. It's more than just a frame. It's a story. Gartner Management, home of the podcast studio, um, is a Lloydminster-based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for a small office or a 6,000-square-foot commercial space, give Wade Gartner a call at 780-808-5025. Carly Clausen, Windsor Plywood. Builders of the podcast studio table, you need to get on their Instagram, see all their amazing work they're doing. Uh, Carly wants to mention uh, we're into a deck, fence, window, and sliding door season. So if you need any of the materials, stop in and, and see these guys or give them a call at 780-875-9663. They'll get you hooked up. If you're in any of these businesses I've just men- mentioned, make sure you tell them you heard about them on the podcast or from the podcast. You heard them talked about on the podcast. Uh, it helps me, and they love hearing that you guys are listening. If you're interested in advertising on the show, visit the Podcast.com In the top right corner, hit the contact button and send me your information. we got lots of different options, and I want to find something that can work for the both of us. Now, let's get on to the T-Bar 1 Tale of the Tape. Originally from Russell, Manitoba, he was drafted by the Calgary Flames in the 1987 NHL Entry Draft in Round 8, 
166th overall. Over his career, he played 1,084 games with 455 goals, 633 assists for a total of 1,088 points. Oh, and not to mention 1,840 penalty minutes. He won a World Junior Gold in 1988, a Stanley Cup in 1989 with the Calgary Flames, a gold with Canada at the Canada Cup in 1991, an Olympic gold in 2002. He's a best-selling author, a country musician. Of course, I'm talking about Theo Fleury. So buckle up. Here we go. Sean Newman podcast today. I'm joined by Mr. Theo Fleury. So thank you, sir, for hopping on. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Uh, right off the top, I, I guess I'm curious on how you're doing. I, I listened to, I was just saying, I've listened to several episodes of you over the last little bit here, as soon as I found out you're coming on and, uh, it was closer to the start of COVID, but you mentioned it was one of the most difficult times in your sobriety was now. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, how are you doing uh, today and more specifically, I guess, in general over this time span? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's no secret that I suffer from like almost debilitating depression and anxiety. And when COVID happened, you know, or before COVID happened, I was on a plane every week going somewhere speaking or helping people. And then all of a sudden it was like nothing. So I fell into about a month and a half depression. Uh, couldn't get out of bed, could barely get up to go to the washroom and, um, you know, was having probably four or five panic attacks a day, you know, just because, you know, of the uncertainty of what was happening, right? And then, uh, you know, the snow all melted, it started to get nice out. So I jumped on my pedal bike, and I started riding my bike. And as soon as I did that, um, you know, I started to feel better. But more importantly, um, you know, I'm wired to win okay and so i always thought that i could somehow defeat my mental illness and what happened was i accepted it for the first time i actually accepted it and said okay this is what the rest of my life is going to look like and instead of trying to beat it let's just try to manage it right and since i switched that mentality and way of thinking I haven't had a problem since so do you have a routine then you're doing now uh, oh, yeah. every morning getting up yeah yeah what do yeah, you what do you do what do you do in the well, morning I, I think the day? I think the biggest misconception with depression and anxiety is that you know uh, the the best relief for that is to move like just move, like go for a walk, go for a ride, you know, get in the car, you know, drive to Starbucks, grab a coffee or whatever. You got to move. But if you sit in it, it just like completely overtakes you. Right. And so, you know, when I get up in the morning, I meditate, you know, light a smudge, you know, do some prayer meditation. Then I get on my bike and go for a ride. And then, you know, I've had some, um, some neck and back issues from my playing days. And so, you know, I've been going to chiropractor, laser therapy, you know, whatever it is. And then at the end of the day, my two boys both work. And so we meet 
at the golf course between four and six o'clock and we play 18 holes of golf every day. So, you know, golf, you know, I'm getting t-shirts made up that says golf is what I take for my anxiety and depression. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you mentioned moving to, to get out of it. Well, that's pretty much what nobody can do right now. That's, that's exactly what happened. How many people are going through what you're talking about? Yeah. It's got to be an unbelievable amount. Yeah, it is. Well, COVID-19 is the most traumatic event that's happened since World War II. 100%. And so, you know, I've been spending my time over the last, since, since I got out of the depression, getting prepared, you know, for the aftermath of COVID. Because I, I was busy before. I'm going to be full out swamped when this is, you know, all said and done. Well, you already are full of swamped. You're doing podcast <laughs> after podcast. Yeah, but that's, that's good because it, it, it gets me out of my head, you know, gets me out of, you know, that stinking thinking stuff. Right. So. Well, some of the best um, therapy in the world is just talking to somebody. Yeah. And it, it, as soon as I was all taken away, everybody locked themselves indoors yeah. and you lose that human factor of it. Yeah. It doesn't well, matter look, how healthy you are. Everybody's all you're being yeah. told in the media and everything is how bad it is. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, they, they know that we're all fucked up and they know that, uh, you know, that if they keep us in fear then they keep us in line and they can control us. Right. So who, you know. who, who's they Theo? I've heard you say that several times. <laughs> well, you know, who they is. <laughs> Well, when I said you're coming on, uh, you have a crazy amount of Twitter followers. It's just like active. I, I, I've had people on that have millions of followers, but your act, your followers are like engaged. Oh yeah. And when I brought you on, uh, Lloyd Minster, uh, reached out to me and the first thing they wanted me to ask about was 2005. And I'm sure you've had this brought up mm-hmm. several times looking right. back on Dallin cup with uh, horse Lake. Um, what's your thoughts about it now? You know, it's 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was an amazing experience, you know, it's sort of, uh, cause I was so done with hockey. Like I was, I was, you know, I had a lot of resentment and anger and whatnot. And so, you know, uh, going up to horse Lake, I was back in the dressing room, which probably, you know, we all miss the most and actually playing is, you know, that, the, the dressing room has a certain amount of uh, therapeutic um, healing, you know. And as soon as I got back in the dressing room, it all came back to me. And, you know, I found I found the love that I had before. And, and you know, it wasn't at the same level. But, you know, I had, I had a bunch of buddies, you know. Steve Parsons was there. And, you know, Gino and the Lackovic brothers, my cousin was on the team and, you know, so it, it, it was fun. And, and, you know, unfortunately it didn't turn out the way that uh, we had all hoped that it would, but uh, you know, the experience, uh, you know, was, uh, was incredible. Um, you know, the, the people of Horse Lake were phenomenal uh, and uh, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed my time there. And uh, you know, uh, I, I know what you're getting at, and uh, you know I think I've talked about this before, but uh, 
you know, it was it, it was really disappointing to see how uh, you know the Aboriginal people were treated, and uh, you know that hurt a bit. You know, because I I, I do have um, Aboriginal blood in me, and and uh, and you know. I've been to 420 First Nations communities all over Canada now uh, speaking. And, uh, you know, those people have truly given me my life back. You know, uh, I've met some incredible healers. I've met some incredible medicine men, um, you know, spiritual teachers, you name it. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the reputation that they have is not warranted, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, anytime, um, well, when you play on a team that comes in and are the broad street bullies of senior hockey, I remember mm. that, that yeah. team was, you guys were, <laughs> were tough. And when you had Theo Fleury leading the way, uh, you were not known for being the quiet guy. Yeah, I know. No, no, I, uh, well, I, I always said if people in the stands, um, dislike me, then I was doing my job. What was the toughest building you ever went into? Uh, as far as fanfare goes, you know, you played a lot of years, yeah. a lot of different leagues <laughs> and you know, um, there's just, but you know what? I, I wouldn't say they were tough buildings. I, I just think they were, I looked at them as incredible challenges, you know, to uh, stay focused and, you know, try to do what I do best. And that was, you know, score goals and make plays and whatnot. And, uh, but, you know, in junior was Regina, Swift Current, you know, those were, uh, like in Regina, I needed a police escort out of the rink every game. You know, the fans would be standing beside the bus wanting to, you know, kill me, basically. You know, and then places like San Jose, you know, back in the day, I was hated there. Um, uh, you know, Chicago was another. The old Chicago Stadium was a tough building. The old Boston Garden was a tough building to play in, you know. So uh, even the old Odd in Buffalo, you know. Like, if you weren't ready to play in those rinks, man, because they were so small, you know, you get your head taken off pretty quick. <laughs> I had a, a listener reach out, and he said, uh, Jamie Graham says, ask about the time you put Vaseline on fan seats in Section 2 at the old Medicine Hat Arena. When you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike Keenan and I did that uh, one night before a game. They, they, had, a, they had a section – that used to sit behind the players bench and they would absolutely just beak off the whole entire game. And so, you know, we decided one night we we're going to get, get back at them. So. So you showed up early and put Vaseline on the chairs. We Vaseline the whole section. How were you just sitting on the bench? Just like, can't wait. Oh, we were can't killing wait. ourselves laughing. Yeah. We were killing ourselves laughing. Well, what happened? They sat down and they're just like, what the hell is this? Oh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah what i remember uh our backup goalie's name was glenn seymour right okay and so uh one night this fan the the fans in medicine hat in section two the guy goes 
Hey, Seymour, I got a cat at home named Seymour. When I get home, I'm going to kick it, he said. <laughs> so, you know, that's – or uh, Kelly Buckberger. Hey, Buckberger, what's a Buckberger made out of? And the guy beside him, chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just that kind of stupid stuff. But, uh, you know, that – Back in the day, man, that's what junior hockey, that's what made junior hockey so great was, you know, those old buildings and the fans were like right on top of you and, you know, you could hear them and you could go back and forth with them and, you know, like every time I used to score a goal in Regina, I used to machine gun the crowd and everything, they just go nuts. So. You love the interaction with the fans then, don't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, uh. Last time I checked, you know, hockey is entertainment, right? So I'm an entertainer. How, you know, you're not a big guy. And you played in a time when hockey was mean. It wasn't rough. It was downright mean. How did you survive that? I was really good with my stick, you know. Um you know, my first year in the Western League, I was five foot three, 125 pounds. That's what I played, you know. And I remember one of the first times we went up to Prince Albert and they had like, they had a big, mean, friggin' uh, ugly team. And I remember the first shift of that game, I got hit by Dave Manson and I thought I broke every single bone in my body. And I said to myself, that can never happen again. And so, you know, I, I knew that, you know, if they had to come through my stick or elbow or whatever, you know, I became very crafty with, uh, with my stick and, you know, and so I would play this, you know, psychological game with guys out in the ice because I knew that 75% of them were bluffers, you know, and the 25% who weren't bluffers, I stayed away from them, you know? Like, this is what I used to say to Bomber all the time. We'd line up, you know, against each other in the face-off circle, and I'd say to Bomber, man, are you ever playing good tonight, man? You're, you're really moving the puck, and, you know, you're making that first pass. And he would look at me and like, really? I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, you're playing great tonight, you know? And then he wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything, you know? So it'd be that kind of, you know, mentality, right? Did you ever stop talking on the ice? No. No. But, you know, like I'm a highly competitive guy, right? And I think that's probably the biggest reason why I was so successful is I I competed at, you know, a very high level because I hated to lose. And so, you know, I would line up against you at the face-off dot at the beginning of the game and I'd look in your eyes and I'd smile. Why? Because I wanted to get a reaction. Because I was willing to die in order to win and I needed to know if you were willing to do the same thing. And if you weren't, guess what? I can take you anywhere on the ice and do whatever I want with you, right? And and the guys that competed at the same level as me, that's when it got fun because now I got I to gotta elevate my game to another level, you know? And most nights, you know, I'd have to play against the other team's shutdown defense, right? So I played against guys like Chelios and 
Scott Stevens and Bookaboom and Smith and Edmonton, right? And so, you know, those guys were highly competitive guys. And so, you know, those guys actually made me better player because I had, because I had to compete at a higher level. When you look back then, who is the, the one guy that sticks out that when you stepped on the ice against them, you're like, it better be go time because <laughs> this guy takes no prisoners. Yeah, it was Tikkanen. Tikkanen in Edmonton. <clears throat> you know, and, and if you look at Tikkanen's career, you know, everywhere he went, he was that shutdown guy. You know, like Gretz, Gretz hated him. You know, because he, he, was, he was that kind of guy. You know, and he was such a great player. What would he do to you on ice that would just drive you nuts? Well, no, he, you know, he was good with his stick and he could skate and he could, he had skill and, you know, so he could keep up, you know. How good. And so as a, as a skilled guy, you know, you get frustrated when that guy's in your face all the time, right? You know, and you, and you don't want to take penalties and, you know, that kind of stuff too. And, and you know, he, he's not a fighter. So, you know, he's not going to drop his gloves, right? So. You know, you just got to deal with it. You know, you, you bring up the Battle of Alberta and Tikkanen. That was the heyday of the Battle of Alberta. Both teams exceptionally good. Yeah. And such a giant rivalry. I was, I was too young to remember most of it. But you always yeah. hear the, the lore of the stories. Yeah, yeah. What, what moment in that series or uh, across the Battle of Alberta, what moments stick out to you? Well, I think, you know, those games were circled on the calendar, you know, before they were even played, you know, um, you looked forward to them. Uh, and, you know, those are the games you want to play in, you know, as a professional athlete, those are the games that you want to play. Cause that's where you make a name for yourself. Cause you know, it's going to be hard. You know, it's going to be difficult. You know, it's going to be violent. It's going to be, you know, crazy and and uh you know you want to beat them right you know that's you want to win and uh um you know like i said those games were the funnest games to play in because you knew you know uh when you were putting on your equipment you weren't putting on pads you were putting on a suit of armor and you were going to war <laughs> you know right like that series in 1991 was like off the charts like it was so violent and so brutal like when we were slashing guys we were trying to hit bone that's what we were trying to do you know <laughs> and uh and they were trying to do the same to us as well you know and uh um yeah that series was amazing to to be a part of and playing do you remember i mean Gretzky down the road for you as uh plays a big uh, part in your life. Do you remember the first time you stepped on the ice against them and what your thoughts were? Well, I, I was obviously in awe, right? Um, but that quickly subsided. And, uh, you know, I knew I had a job to do and that was to get in his kitchen and, uh, you know, make it difficult for him to, you know, do what he did best. And, uh, you know, we used to have a guy uh, who was our assistant general manager. His name was Al McNeil. And Al was a, an old school, rough, tough defenseman back in the day. And, you know, he became part of management. I remember him in the morning skates coming to me, 
every time we played against LA and said, you know, you make it hard for that guy to play and you do everything you can get in his kitchen and, you know, don't be afraid to whack him and slash him and all that. And so, so if you ask Gretz today who his least favorite guy was to play against, he would say it was me. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that left an impression on him. And then obviously, uh, in 2002, um, uh, probably the most difficult time in my life, uh, you know, he picked me to, you know, be a part of uh, the Olympic team in 2002 in Salt Lake. And, uh, you know, I think at, at that point, everybody had written me off except for him because he played against me and played with me and, uh, and whatnot. And so, you know, uh, I have a lot of respect for him. And, uh, you know, not only is he a great hockey player, but I think more importantly, he's a even better human being. And that's what I respect the most about Wayne Gretzky. Do you remember the call for the 2002 Olympics? Yeah, we were in New York and uh, uh, I think, was it, I don't know if we were getting ready for morning skate or actually getting ready to go on the ice and play a game. And my, uh, one of the PR guys from the Rangers said, hey, it's Gretz on the phone. And so I went into the, into the can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to Gretz on the phone and, you know, he said, Hey, you've been picked to, to represent Canada 2002 Olympics. And I was just like, wow, thanks man. And uh, appreciate it. And, uh, you know, let's go win the gold medal. Have you talked to him about it since? I assume, and I can only assume that when he brought that up around the round table, they're sitting there picking the team and he brings up, I want Theo Fleury. Yeah. I'm assuming he got a little bit of pushback. Oh Yeah. Yep. He tells that story every time we're together. He <laughs> tells that story to anybody who will listen, listen to him tell the story. And, uh, he actually told it at his fantasy camp uh, in front of all the guys. I uh, um, can't remember when that was. I think it was like 2008 I was down there for his fantasy camp. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, we have sort of a an interesting relationship. We don't talk to each other on the phone or anything, but – you know, when we do see each other at different events, uh, you know, he always makes a point of, uh, you know, coming over and make sure, making sure I'm okay. So. Well, I, uh, the 2002 Olympics, I think for a lot of Canadians, uh, hell, even a lot of Americans sticks out. And the thing I always remember as a young guy was Gretzky's press conference where he talks about uh, you and the abuse the Canadians are taking. Yeah. And uh, that kind of became a lightning rod for you guys. Do you remember, like, after that press conference came out and Grex just goes out and, like, lay, lays, it on, lay, lays it out to everybody? Like, this is yeah. what's going on. Right. Well, you know, we learned a lot from the 98 Olympics. And so uh, the biggest difference was that, when Gretz took over the team, he took out all the distractions that were going to distract us from really just focusing on playing. And so, you know, we were pretty sheltered, you know, and we heard about the press conference, but I don't think we actually saw it. We heard about it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know if that added any fuel to the fire because if you look at the lineup, <laughs> you know. Unbelievable. Um, you know, uh, you know, I say, 
You know, I played on the fourth line with Joe Newendike and Brandon <laughs> Shanahan. That was the fourth line for Team Canada. So not you know, too shabby. If you look up, if you look up the three sets of stats, you know, and that we were sort of considered, you know, to be this kind of energy, you know, momentum shifting kind of line. You know, you probably laugh at yourself, you know, because. Uh, but yeah, that that team was just—it was ridiculous, you know. Looking, you know, all the different things you've won—the cup, the gold medals. Was there after you'd won one of them? Was there ever a time you just sat in the dressing room and it was surreal, and you just were like, "Wow"? I, I think every time, you know, every time you you win at that level, there is a certain amount of uh, reflection, you know. Um, but when you're young, you know, you just want to get to the next winning opportunity, right? And so obviously now, you know, that I've been retired for 16 years, you know, I look back on those uh, times and those moments and, you know, <laughs> the one great thing about COVID was I was able to watch the the whole entire Stanley Cup final uh, on Sportsnet. Um, and, you know, there was, there was things I – you know, sort of didn't remember. So it was nice to be able to sort of reminisce and, and, uh, you know, take a walk down memory lane because, uh, you know, and what I, what I noticed was, you know, there was absolutely no room on the ice at all. Like if you wanted room, you had to create it yourself through, you know, physicality or speed or, you know, whatever it was. So yeah, it was, it was interesting to watch it. Um, I know I've listened to you say before, and you, maybe not hoarder is not the right word, but you keep a lot of your memorabilia. Mm-hmm. And over the gold medals, et cetera, et cetera, is there one that you got like on the wall that's your most proud? Like that is it? Well, I have my three, my three. I have three jerseys that I uh, display prominently in my house. So that's the Stanley Cup jersey. 1991 Canada Cup and uh, the 2002 Olympic medal. And then I have my Stanley, my little Stanley Cup and my little Clarence Campbell bowl that, that, you know, people can, can see. Other than that, everything else is packed away for my kids. So. Um, how about winning the cup then? Uh, you're, you're like, you're in the, you're in the minors. And then you come up and hop on, you know, I'm a, I'm an Oilers fan, right? I, yep. but that flames team was ridiculous. Stacked. That was stacked. Well, think about it. I was the fourth line centerman on that team too, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, when you're playing road hockey in Russell, Manitoba and it's minus 50 and your eyelids are frozen shut, you know, you dream about playing in the NHL first and foremost, right? And then when you get to the NHL, then you start to dream about winning Stanley Cups. And so, you know, I was able to do that all in the same year, you know. And uh, what was interesting, though, was, you know, I won a World Junior. And then six months later, I was in Salt Lake City, which was the Flames minor league team. We won the Turner Cup that year. And then a year later... I won a Stanley Cup. So within 18 months, I had three rings. And I was like, what's the big deal? This is easy, right? And then, you know, I play 15 years in the NHL and I don't get another sniff at the Stanley Cup, 
you know? So when people say that it's hard to win the 10, it's hard to win the 10, you know? A lot of things have to fall into place for, you know, for that to happen. So was there a team after that then you thought maybe there was, this could be the year again? Well, we, we should have won probably at least one more, maybe two, you know, uh, after the fact, but we just, we couldn't get out of the first round of the playoffs. It was unbelievable. How I think, uh, four game sevens in the first round, you know, and, and I think three, three or all four went into overtime. Unbelievable. That yeah. that's the first round of playoffs. Any fan will tell you is the most exciting <clears throat> hockey in the world. Yeah, because everybody has a clean slate, right? And you know, it's all it's all about momentum, you know. And if you lose the momentum, it's hard to get it back. It's what do you? What do you think of the twenty four team uh, playoff tournament? happening in Edmonton and Toronto this year? I think it's great. You know, if everybody can stay healthy and stay out of the COVID thing, I think, you know, it's sort of made for TV, you know, because you're not going to be able to have fans, you know. But I read something, August 1st, there's going to be 71 live games being played. Hockey, uh, basketball, are all going to be on the same day. And there's going to be... 71 games. Holy Dinah. So we're all going to be, we're all going to be cross-eyed. Going back to the 89 team, um, you got to play with a guy. I love his name. We even named our draft uh, after him. It's Hawk and Lube. Oh yes. (laughs) What was Hawk and Lube like? One of the sickest players ever. He could stick handle in a phone booth on gravel. That's how good he was. (laughs) You know, he, uh, and, and uh, like, uh, the sweetest guy you'll ever met, meet, you know, funny guy, you know, but, uh, my best Hawk and Lube story is we were playing in the old Boston garden the, that year we won the cup and he held on to the puck for a minute and 10 seconds and nobody could get off, get it, get him off the puck. And he finished it off by like, sick move and scoring a goal. It was just, it was unbelievable. (laughs) Guy had sick hands and a better name. Yeah. Hawk and Lube. Yeah. Great name. Do you, uh, you know, with your size and how small you were back then, did uh, any of the big guys in the room, like they must've been when you walked in the dressing room, been like, who is (laughs) it? Is he our stick boy? Is that who this is? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, and that, that was the funniest thing about, um, you know, watching that 89 Stanley Cup final. You know, I'm 52 years old. I was 20 back then, you know, and I was just like, oh, my God. You know, I looked like a baby back then, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was it was interesting. But, you know, I, I think that um, – so th- th- this is a great story. So – um, you know, the Flames had a very veteran team, right? And so I came January 1st and, you know, I wasn't really accepted at the beginning. You know, I was kind of like a, you know, circus act, right? And so we played LA in Calgary and uh, we called up a, a guy from the minors, a guy named Kenny Sabrin. He was a defenseman. And so uh, 
I ended up on the ice with Gretz and uh, Ken Baumgartner and, and Jay Miller. Okay. So this young kid we called up from the minors absolutely like <laughs> laid Gretz out in the corner. So then yard sale, gloves, helmets, sticks flying everywhere, and it's a, a line brawl. And so Timmy Hunter was one of my line mates, and he was on the ice. And so Jay Miller and Bomber were trying to get at him two on one of them, right? So I'm like, I can't let that happen. So I jumped on Baumgartner's back, okay? <laughs> and he basically went like this, picked me off like a little fucking mosquito, and he just fucking drilled me like right between the eyes and split my forehead wide open, right? So I'm fucking you know, wrestling with, with Baumgartner and all of a sudden I get this fucking tap on my shoulder and I look over and it's Gretz. And he's like, kid, we got to get you to the bench. You know, you're fucking bleeding and shit. So this is how I think. So as Gretz is escorting me to the bench, I'm, I say to myself, should I fucking sucker Wayne Gretzky right now? You know, So my common sense kicked in and I said, that would probably be a bad career move. So I didn't. And, uh, and so I went back to the bench. I went to the dressing room. They sewed me up and I came back and I scored two goals that night. And I was the first star of the game. I think that's exactly when my teammates accepted me that, you know, that I was here to, you know, to help them win at Stanley cup. And, and, uh, you know, after that, it was, it was pretty good. That's unreal. Can you imagine if you were to sucker Gretzky? Oh my God. Oh, yeah. I would add the whole LA bench on me. They would have jumped <laughs> over the fucking bench and it would have been a bench clearing brawl. No question about it. You know, in your book, and I, I, I have to uh, be forthright, I, I put it out on Twitter. I, I just read it uh, about a week and a half ago. I am about 10 years after the fact. And uh, it was uh, from start to finish, that book is a hold on to. Holy shit level. Yeah. You got some like crazy stories um, about pain endurance that I find super fascinating. And I was hoping I could get you to talk about your first 50 goal season because you do it on a bum knee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were, uh, we were in LA uh, playing against uh, the, the Kings and Tony Granato was a similar kind of player to I, uh, as I was, you know, he was highly skilled and, you know, mouthy and lippy and whatever. And so he, and we were getting killed. I, I think we lost the game like 11 to four in LA that, that, that afternoon. And right at the end of the game, I saw Granato coming up the ice and I stuck my knee out and we hit knee on knee. And, you know, I knew something was, was wrong. And so we got back to Calgary and, uh, and I was close to getting 50 goals. Like I think I had 47 at that time. And so we had a few days off. So I was able to get some, some rehab and, and some ice and whatever. And then we played Vancouver the next game. And, uh, you know, the doctors were kind of like, you know, I don't think, you know, you should be playing or whatever. Right. So the, after the morning skate, I went to the doctor's office and, uh, 
he basically put me through a whole bunch of exercises. Right. And I couldn't do any of them, but I fucking sucked it up and you know, whatever. And then that night I went out and scored my fifth. I, I scored a hat trick against Vancouver and scored my 50th, 50th goal with basically a second degree tear of my MCL of my, of my knee. And, and then the playoffs started right after that. And I was against Edmonton. And so basically I was on the Novocaine drip for, you know, for two weeks. Cause not only did I have a, a bum knee, but I also had a separated shoulder at the same time. And so basically just go in and get frozen, uh, you know, before every game and then go out and play. And then after the game, ice bags and ultrasound and all that. So. I think you wrote in the book something along the lines is the trainer knew you weren't hundred percent. So he made you do the duck walk. around. Yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. And I can tell you, I was fucked. Like, uh, you could have peeled me off the ceiling. That's how much pain I was in. You know, so, you know, the cat on the fucking, <laughs> you know, that was me. So, but you know what the, the, the hardest thing for a professional athlete to do is sit out. You know, to watch your teammates sort of go to war and, you know, you're sitting in the stands and there's absolutely fuck all you can do, you know, like that's the worst feeling you can have. And so, you know, you you played the majority of your career, you know, with some sort of nagging injury, right? You know, like I, I played two full seasons with high ankle sprains. And I didn't tell the fucking coach or coach or trainer or nothing. You know, I just, you know, they would tape, tape my ankle up every, every practice, every game and, you know, but. How about the night in, uh, you were playing in Calgary, I believe back in the WHL when you get high sticked (laughs) three root canals later. Crazy stuff. I don't know. I just, I was just, I don't, I don't know. I just, one of those guys is tough and had high, a high pain tolerance, you know? But like I said, more importantly, I, I didn't like, I didn't want to sit out, you know, I wanted to be out there with my teammates and, you know, so you, so you sacrifice a lot, but now I'm paying for it, right? I'm 52 years old and every morning I, I have a real tough time getting out of bed and, you know, takes me a good 45 minutes to warm up at the golf course now and you know all that kind of stuff so it's you know i paid the i'm paying the price now for not taking care of myself injury wise during my career that's for sure i had uh chris dingman on earlier this week and he had, he told me he's like you got to ask about uh one of the last games you you're with the flames you got a day off before you're playing la you're out golfing with a group of guys and castles dares you to go to vegas no it was iggy was it iggy it was iggy yeah so we were in a we're in a 15 passenger van like budget rent a van right <laughs> and we just finished playing pelican hills which is sick golf course in in newport beach in in la we're driving back to uh, LAX where we were staying and we're driving by the John Wayne airport in Orange County and Iggy's sitting in the back of the fucking, and we're all hammered, right? Cause we're out of the playoffs. We have no chance, you know, it's a day off, whatever. We have two games left, one in LA and one in San Jose. 
And uh, Iggy fucking yells, you don't have the balls to fucking take us all to Vegas. So I did a fucking eight laner across the fucking freeway, pulled up to the front door. I bought, I think it was 11 plane tickets to Vegas. And we all got on the plane, went to Vegas the night before the game. Stayed up all night. Got to the airport at fucking, I don't even know what time it was, like eight in the morning. Jumped on a plane, came back just in time to get back for morning skate that, that morning. So crazy stuff. You bring a whole new meeting to playing guilty. I mean, us senior <laughs> guys talk about guilty, but that's on a whole new level. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. But, you know, we always used to say, camera replaces good times, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just keeping track of the time, Theo. It's We're closing in on 45 minutes. I just want to know, uh, do I got five minutes with you left? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You can go to the top of the hour if you want. Okay, okay, yeah. perfect. All right. Um, I want to talk about coaches. Uh, you've had some very decorated coaches. You've had some very lackluster coaches. Um I had heard you'd read, I think it was in your book, you said something along the lines of coaching ain't hard, just it's people management, but people get it wrong all the time. Yeah. Looking back through your career, who was maybe one of the better coaches you had and what did they try, what did they help you with? Well, my favorite guys were the, you know, were the sort of hard ass old school guys, you know, because if you worked hard, they'd leave you alone. The guys I had the most difficult time were with the X's and O guys and guys that never really played the game. So they didn't really fully understand, you know, and, uh, um, I'm not a video guy, right. You know, that's not how my brain works. You know, I'm wired for competition and no matter what kind of shape I was in, if you threw a puck on the ice, I'd give you everything I had every single night. And so, you know, I hated practice. I hated working out, but I just loved to play the game, right? And so with the X's and O's guys and the fitness guys, you know, you know, of course I'm going to butt heads with those guys because, you know, I don't want to be there, right? I just want to show up for the games and I just want to play the games, right? And, you know, towards the end of my career, towards my end of my time in Calgary, like we had a young team, like really young team. and so. You know, we'd have like an hour and a half practices. And I'm just like, this fucking sucks, right? You know, because I don't need, what do I need to learn, right? But I knew that, you know, we had a lot of young guys that needed, you know, needed the ice time and needed the reps and, and all of that. So, um, but I, like Crispy, who was our, coach when we won the Stanley Cup. Our practices were 35 minutes every day and we did the same five drills every day for the whole entire year. And it was ne it never changed. And I loved that. It was awesome. You know? And if you wanted to stay out after and do extra work or whatever you could, you know? But, you know, guys like Dave King and Pierre Paget and those kind of guys, they were they were exhausting. Exhausting. You so, know. Crispy, having him your, as your first NHL coach was a godsend. Well, I would say he was instrumental in, in helping me make it because he believed in me and gave me, <clears throat> you know, the opportunity to, 
you know, to do what I, what I did. And, uh, you know, he lived with my mistakes early on in my, you know, my career. Cause you know, I was pretty raw. You know, I came from junior where I had the puck all night long. Like I didn't have to play defense in junior. And then I get to the NHL level and I got to learn how to play without the puck. Right. But I, you know, as much as, uh, I didn't like Dave King, Dave King made me a better player without the puck, you know? And so I became this sort of all rounded player, right. Where I, you know, played the power play. I penalty killed. I was out in the last minute. I took important face offs, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was, it was his influence, you know, that really taught me where to be positioned on the ice so that I'd be, be a way better defensive player. And because of that, I had the puck more, you know, because I, I was in positions where I would get the puck in good positions, you know, to, you know, to transition up the ice. So, you know, and I say at the end of the day, I learned something from each guy, you know, that, you know, that I carried with me, you know, throughout my, my whole entire career. So, but I loved, I loved the old school guys like Brian Sutter and Ronnie Lowe and John Muckler and, you know, those kind of guys were, you know, they just wanted you to work hard. And that was easy for me. Right. Yep. Show up and go to work. Yep. Yep. Bring your lunch pail. You know, you uh, sign your biggest deal going to the New York Rangers. You get to play on the fly line. I got a buddy <laughs> who uh, works with Mr. York in Wisconsin, Minnesota. One of the two. I can't remember now. But uh, he was wondering what it was like playing on the fly line with those guys, with it the was Big un- E. It was unbelievable. Yeah, we were on we were on fire there for, especially the Olympic year, like uh, December when they picked the team. Like our line was probably the best line in hockey, you know. And all we had to do was get Big E the puck, and you know that was it. Well, he was. For a while there, he was the most dominant man in all of hockey. Oh, yeah. He's massive. Like, he is massive. Massive. His legs and his – yeah. I'll tell you a great story. So, 1991 Canada Cup, we're doing our fitness testing. And they had the grip, the grip test. So, I get up there, I grab the grip, 40, okay? Scott Stevens comes behind me, grabs it. 60, okay? Eric Lindros is 18 years old, hasn't played a game in the NHL, grabs this grip thing, 80. Unbelievable. It's like ridiculous. And then in that tournament, like he absolutely was fucking laying guys out left, right, and center. It was like, who is this guy? It was unbelievable. And his stick... Honestly, I could barely pick it. Like, I could barely lift it off the ice to stick handle with it. That's how, that's how heavy it was and stiff. It was ridiculous. I used to take it in practice just to fucking make the guys laugh. It was hilarious. I couldn't even raise the puck with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a freak of nature. While in New York, one of the things that jumped out about, uh, I mean, there was lots in your book, but uh, I, I guess I never really thought about it until I read it. 
but you were in New York City when the Twin Towers were hit. Yeah. Remember that day? Yeah. Well, what's interesting was when I was in Colorado, I was there when Columbine happened. Well, <laughs> like those two, Columbine, absolutely. And that's why, that's why I often refer to myself as the real life living Forrest Gump. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I was, in, I was in Columbine. And then I went to New York a year later and 9-11 happened. So, you know, we were 20 blocks away from the Twin Towers when it happened, right? And I was rooming with Sandy McCarthy that morning. And we, for some reason, we fell asleep with the TV on. And I woke up and I saw this plane fucking flying into the towers. And I was like, wow, what's this movie? And then next thing you know, the reporter come on and saying, yeah, plane has just flown into the into the towers and then the second plane came and then you know because what happened was for the first time ever in the history of the new york rangers we were gonna have training camp at madison square garden and so all that happened we all went down to madison square garden we actually did our fitness tests that day and then i remember walking back to the hotel and we had to walk through Times Square to get back to the hotel. And, you know, there's usually 100,000 people there every day walking around Times Square. And it was completely empty and deserted. It was like, it was nuts. Can't remember what that Tom Cruise movie was where they showed that scene when when uh, uh, Times Square was empty. Well, that's that's what it felt like. It was It was crazy. And then they shut down all the bridges so we couldn't get out of there. And then eventually we did, and then we ended up having the rest of our training camp at our practice facility in Rye. So it was bizarre. And then we went around and visited the different uh, fire halls and police stations and whatever. It was it was surreal. It was surreal. Well, you look back on just my life. That is one of the moments that just sticks out. I was in school in grade like eleven, and. Mm-hmm. Every class, the teacher would basically tell you to shut up, sit down, and watch, and they'd roll in a TV, yeah. and you watch. That was yeah. it. We didn't do anything else. Yeah. It's uh, what's the crazy world we're living in right now, you know? Like, where this is all going to end up is, uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine, but I hope that, uh, you know, common sense prevails here and that, uh, you know, we get we get back to some sort of semblance of what life was like before all this happened. Well, probably which leads me into my next question, which is a lot of people are wondering if you're going to run for political office. You're a, you're a guy who, on social media, a lot of people think uh, exactly what you're saying is bang on. And they, well, once again, I don't know how many times I've read it before I hopped on here. Like, is he going to run... Question one, is he going to run for political office? Have you ever had thoughts about that? Well, you know what? I've been asked several times by the Conservative Party of Canada, and I've just said, you know, uh, I think um, being in the mental health space, the addiction space is probably where I'm supposed to be right now. Um, You know, and, uh, but, you know, I've always been a shit disturber. And, uh, you know, 
you know, that's kind of, well, it's interesting because I, I talked to a, a girl from CBC the other day because of my We Day quote. And I told her, I said, I don't talk to CBC anymore. She's like, what are you talking about? I go, I don't do interviews for CBC anymore. She's like, why? Because I said, well, because you're a propaganda arm for the Liberal Party of Canada. I said, I'm conservative. And I said, you're probably going to take what I'm going to say and you're going to twist it around and you're going to, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, I said, I have my own. I have my own TV station, radio station, newspaper right on my phone because I have, a, you know, I have 112 followers on Twitter. I have another... 70,000 on Facebook, you know, another 20,000 on Instagram, you know, another 20,000 on LinkedIn. So I said, if I want to get my message out there, I just have to log into my phone and, you know, say what I need to say. So what do you think of the current government then? And I don't know if I want to go down this road. Actually, I know I do. I just don't know how much time we have to spend. Right. On. Yeah, we got time. Well, you know, it, uh, It's just straight hypocrisy, okay? You know, um, they tell us not to do something and then they go and do it, you know? And to me that, you know, that just doesn't sit well, you know? Uh, three ethics violations, blackface, you know, and he's still the prime minister of our country. So if, if a conservative or an NDP or a black Quebecois guy did it, they would be forced out, you know, by this cancel culture, you know, and, uh, you know, that's, that's not the Canada I grew up in, you know, you know, the West and the East is completely divided, you know, and that's all been brought on by Trudeau and, and the liberals, you know, and social media. Yeah. And social social media. media loves to create a divide. They've yeah. divided. Yeah. We all know how social media, well, I think we all know how social media works. You follow something, you like something, it starts feeding you more of that, right? So if you like conservative stuff, they, they feed you. And, you, you know, you talk about CBC um, cutting up what you say. Both sides do that. It's, it, honestly, Theo, it's such a hard thing. I think all of us are sitting in the back room talking about it. We're like, I don't even know who to, who do you turn to right now? I know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um you know, like I grew up in Western Canada, okay? And, you know, one of the reasons why I was successful in my hockey career is because I wasn't afraid to work. Because I had ample examples of people who worked hard were successful. Like I grew up in a farming community in Manitoba and I watched people get up at six o'clock in the morning and work till 10 o'clock at night and they went on nice vacations, they drove nice cars. They had nice houses. You know, I grew up very poor. You know, I lived in a low rental house. And I said, you know, I, I don't want to live in Russell, Manitoba for the rest of my life. Like, I want to do something. But I had that hard work instilled in me as a young person going, if I work hard, you know, there isn't anything I can accomplish. And the fact that we, we can't find work in Western Canada when it's the complete soul of every single person that lives in Western Canada. We just want to work and we can't. So, and then Easterners are, are saying we're whiners because we want to work. Like how ridiculous is that? Very. 
You know what I mean? And then, you know, they want to cancel all the pipelines, but they filled a tanker full of and went 20,000 miles and took it to New Brunswick. Like, is that not stupid? Well, I, I think all of us, specifically in Western Canada, I can't speak for the other side because yeah, I've been, I, I, you've been to the Eastern Canada. There's a lot of great people across this entire yes, absolutely. country. But yeah. it hurts my brain. It just hurts it when you read the story about the ship going around by the Panama Canal and you're like, yeah. why not just put the pipeline in? Why not yeah. put people back to work on a project that'll make all the country yeah. benefit from it? Save us expense on the one side, make us money on the other side. The money goes everywhere, helps everybody living in this entire country. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, uh, Michael Moore, you know, puts out this documentary. Yeah. That basically says every green technology needs fossil fuel in order to be green. What? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and... You know, we're the th- we well, we were the third largest producer of you know natural resources on the planet, and we just shut it down. I I don't know what to say. Explain I, that. I, Explain that to me. Here, here's here's where I said okay. I, I'm before we started talking. If you would have heard my name, you would have been like, "Who's that?" Right. And so I sit in Lloydminster. I go to work every day. I have my wife, my kids. I do a podcast on the side. I watch what's going on and I go, man, if this is, this will put me in a full panic mode if I think about it too long, because at the end of the day, we all have our uh, spheres of influence. Yeah. Right. So yours, mm-hmm. obviously from your followers is bigger and I got a little following. So it's, it's not like it's nothing, but it's small. Mm-hmm. And so I watch what's going on in the political landscape and I'm just waiting, you know, I'd I'd love to sit here and go, I'm going to run for political office tomorrow and whatever. But the same thing would happen is what I just said, right? You go, who's running? And so I wait for somebody. And I think a lot of us are waiting for somebody just to grab a hold of the reins, hop in and away you go. And I always, honestly, the guy I always stare at is Brad Wall. I, I, I still am having a hard time wondering why he isn't running for it and, and winning it. Because I think all the conservatives need, the popular vote showed us last vote, is if you had the right person, all the Canada's behind them. Right Right now, we're going, well, it's this person or this person. Nobody seems to know if we're going to have the right guy or woman, for that matter. The biggest problem with the conservatives is, is they're letting the media control their message. You know, and, you know, I, I've met Andrew Shear. I think he's a, a wonderful guy. He's a, you know, kind and all that stuff, but they, they don't, they run his show, you know, and he's, he hasn't pushed back once, you know, you look at a guy like Trump down South. He, he doesn't let them control the narrative. He controls the narrative, right? When every single, everybody's against him, and he's still, you know, so he's able to get his message out there because he uses social media, you know, and he has a, a very, very smart guy, you know, that Parscale guy who's been running his social media. The guy's a genius. So you think everything Trump says then is planned? Like, I mean, I'm even, even, even the absurd things he says where everyone's Absolutely. like, what in the hell is he saying? 
Absolutely. For sure. Because he knows he's, he, the, the, the Democrats are going to go nuts. Crazy. Hmm. Well, this has been, I, I tell you what, I love. Like I've, I've met, I met Trump too. And when I played in New York and I thought he was a really nice guy, super nice guy, genuine cared about, cared about me and, you know, was personable. So, you know, even Shaq said it, you know, I've seen interviews with Shaq. who said he's hung out with Trump all the time. He loves him. You know, I love Shaq. You know, he's no filter guy. He says whatever the fuck he wants to say. You know, we need more people like that. Everybody's so afraid. The conservative people are so afraid of being called a racist that they just don't, they don't fucking say a word. Well, that's so, if you don't put, so if you don't push back, you know, they're going to, they're going to run your show. And I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not, I was silenced for so long with my abuse and my story of trauma and it ate my fucking lunch. It's never going to happen again. If I got something to say, I'm going to say it. I don't give a shit what people think about me. Well, and I think uh, people like yourself, the reason why uh, you're picking up followers left, right, and center uh, is because that is disappearing yeah, I'm, I'm their voice. I'm their voice. I'm their voice. You know? And like I said, I don't care. I don't care. You know? I, just, I, just, I want my country back. I want just common sense back. Right. Yeah. That is the country, I yeah. guess. Right. Yeah. Like I just want, when you, when you pick up the, the news article, you're like, would you, oh, would, that would makes you kind of sense. Would you call yourself a racist? Myself? Yeah. Certainly try not to be, but I don't know. I, I, I laugh all the time now. I'm like, I, I don't know. Well, like if I say anything. Just got in front of the country and said, we're all a bunch of racists. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I guess to answer your question, no, I don't consider myself a racist. I yeah. try and be as fair. Exactly. I think I think ninety-nine percent of us. Yeah. And, and, I would, and you've I would, seen the one percent. You talked about it way yeah. back at the start of this. There's no matter where you go in this pro, uh, province, country, world. There's people yeah. with shitty views. Yeah. But majority but, of us. But I also the best for else, everyone. But I also know because I've you know. I'm in the psychology space is that that that's learned behaviors, right? Those are learned behaviors. If you grow, if you grew up with a racist, you're going to be a racist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, there, I get the fact that yes, we need some diversity training and we need some, some of that stuff, but to call all of us racist is unfair and unwarranted. Yeah, there, there, there is a small percentage of people, but, you know, they've, they've never been taught anything differently, right? So, you know, it's, it's messed up. It's just, it's just, I don't know, I don't know where this is all going to lead to. And, and uh, you know, eventually it'll come to a head, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later, you know. Yeah. Like, are you going to get a vaccine? Oh man, I, uh, <laughs> right. There it is. Well, I just, I don't like it. We were having this conversation the other day. It's like, if tomorrow they said the only way your kid could go to school is by having a vaccine, are you going to get your kids vaccinated? It's like, well, then it doesn't really feel like a choice. Then it no. feels like, 
here it is. You got to abide by this. You got to abide by what we say. And what's so lovely about all of North America is our freedom. We, we have freedom of choice, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, as time goes on, it just feels like a little more it gets taken away. Yeah. And actually, you know, I, I, was, I was talking with a friend earlier on the, uh, about some of this. And the thing is, is in the very beginning, Theo, I was watching it all. I watched everything. I watched so much Justin Trudeau, my head hurt. Yeah. And I was stressed. And I think the entire country was stressed. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes wonder if they knew that would happen. And then after a month or two, everybody would be like, okay, the world's not falling. The sky's not, you know, like we're okay. And yeah. now what I hear is none of us are watching it. And now you see here the scandal after scandal after scandal. And you're like, man, now none of the country's watching this and it's sliding all by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yeah ask about, you ask about a vaccine. I, I don't, I don't know what to say it's interesting to to talk about because you don't know i don't know the parameters of it right now you're saying if they if the government walked in and said you need to have this otherwise you can't go to work i'm fucking super sketched out i think everybody would be yeah well i want to know what's in the vaccine what what type of you know chemicals are in the vaccine uh what are the side effects of of each and every one of these chemicals that i'm putting in my body is there a microchip in there as well Right. You know, like, I want to know. You think they gave a micro trip in the vaccine? Who knows? Who, who knows? Right. <laughs> you know, when you got Bill Gates out there, you know, you know, he's going to make, I don't know, a hundred billion vaccinating the whole entire world. I don't know. You know, sure. sure makes like what I tell people is, you know, before you, Call me a conspiracy theorist. Like, go do your research. Because it's all out there. It's yeah, all but, out there. But Theo, nobody likes going to do research. No, uh, I, I get every, it. Everybody, everybody is uh, likes easy, right? Yeah. Oh, that's what happened. Oh, yeah. Kim Kardashian flashed the mob, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they carry on with their day. Trudeau apologized. whoop de do. They don't, nobody... I shouldn't say nobody, a small percentage of the people actually go do the research. Yes. And probably what's coming, the best thing that's coming out of COVID is more people are doing the research. Yeah. The thing with the word conspiracy is conspiracy has a negative connotation. So as soon as you say the word conspiracy, right away, everybody thinks loony. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the more that comes out about every last little thing and you know we're talking politics and vaccines but i mean look at what came out about epstein uh, the the documentary like fuck my life that is hurts my head yeah and yeah, that goes I, that that shows systematically how a guy with way too much money got away with horrendous shit for way too long and people yeah. knew about it well who who are the most successful businesses through covid amazon walmart Right. So we're, we're given, we're given, you know, because money is power. And then when you have power, you can abuse people. It's a very simple formula. So you're saying if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, probably is a duck. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Well, I've kept you a few minutes long. Uh, why don't I, we could go- talk, I could talk politics all day long, every day, but you know, 
I never used to follow politics. And then as soon as Trump walked down the escalator, I started watching politics and I became this, I became addicted to politics. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how they do, how, how they, you know, influence people. So where do you think this leads in? Well, it's going to come to a head eventually. Has to. It always does. Right. So, you know, um, I don't know, you know, uh, the fact that Trudeau is 40 points and conservatives are 22. If he calls an election, like it's the end of Canada, I believe as we, as we know it, it's, it's over. If he gets a majority, can you imagine what's going to happen? He has a minority and look at the stuff he's doing. Well, that's why people with your platform and heck even me, right? We, uh, I hear so many, so many sports shows in particular, I listen to a lot of sports, but a lot of people, I guess, just with platforms in general, um, don't want to talk about politics. And I think more and more, man, we all got to start paying attention. Otherwise it's going to disappear. You know, it's just going to pass and it's going to be too late. And then we're, you know, we're going to be going, how the hell did that happen? Well, it feels like it's happening right now. And that's what they're, that's what they're banking on, you know, is, well, they're already trying to suppress information already. Right. Anybody who has a a different opinion of, you know, uh, other than liberal, you, you, you got to really, you got to really search for the information, you know, and if you don't, you know, then you have only one side of the, of the, of the spectrum, one side of the picture. Right. So, you know, and I, I laugh at people, you know, I laugh at liberals, you know, cause, cause their playbook is, you know, they insult you first. Right. And then they'll just keep coming at you, coming at you. And then at the end, they'll call you racist. That's, that's their playbook. They don't really have any argument. They have no rebuttal for blackface. They have no rebuttal for all these ethnic violations, nothing, you know, it's hilarious. You know, you know, when, when, you know, we've become a banana Republic, you know, the, the, the patients are running the asylum, basically what, what it is, you know? So, Two of the stupidest people in Canada, the finance minister and the prime minister, are running this country. Zero, 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 zero leadership skills. I've played for some of the greatest leaders on the planet. They were all humble. They were all compassionate, caring, loving people. This guy is day by day. He's, he runs seat of his pants. You know, if you, if you think he cares about you, he doesn't. He only cares about himself. Well, this has been very interesting. I, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm happy uh, it came up. I'm, uh, I can yeah. see how passionate you are about it. And I think a lot of us are behind closed doors where nobody can hear. We're all talking about it. But nobody, you stick your head up and you get attacked for, for talking about it. Yeah. And, and, 
you know, if, if that's the case, we're going to lose, you know, if you're, you know, don't be afraid, you know, don't be afraid. Like I said, I, I, I was silenced for the majority of my life and it, you know, 16 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to take my own life because I stayed silent because I, I stopped using my voice or I didn't use my voice, you know? God gave us a, a, a voice for a reason, and that was to use it. And whether you're in the mental health space or addiction space or political, whatever it is, you know, like you can't carry this shit around with you because it, 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 it eats your lunch, you know. And, um, you know, part of the reason why I'm so boisterous politically is, you know, I have a voice and I'm going to use it. And if you like it, Great. If you don't, that's your prerogative too. You know, um, conversation and, and rebuttal is, is part of life. You know, I know that 50% of the people that live on this planet don't like me, but I know that 50%, I know that 50% do do. So I'm going to hang out with the 50% that, that do like me, you know, and it's that simple. Right. I I think, I, I, I would argue that. I would say uh, they make you feel like 50% of the people don't like you. Right. Well, because, because you know, I, unfortunately, you know, I've had to choose because, because they want us divided, right? I think um, things like podcasting and alternative sources of information, you know, I always think of Joe Rogan. I listen to a lot of them. He's yeah. a smart guy. has very interesting people on platforms like that to get around the government being able to dictate what's talked about because because that's how you get power is the will of the people right if you have the will of the people and if you're and if you they're scared to speak up you become their voice right you become the voice for those people that are afraid to uh you know talk talk about their opinion what what they think is is right or wrong. And so, you know, that's kind of how I see my role is that, you know, I know that there's a lot of conservative people in Western Canada who are afraid to, to talk, you know, like I said, I've been silenced my whole entire life. That's never going to happen again. You know, my, I guess one of the, just changing the subject, um, it's something I've wanted to ask you since reading your book. It was in your first couple of chapters. It was very, very difficult to read. And I'm the guy reading it, not having to experience it. Um, I know you, I've heard you say you, you want to talk about the solutions and not the problem. And uh, talking about Graham James is like reliving the traumatic events. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I would say if people want to know about it, read the damn book. Because, I mean, right. the first couple of chapters are about as skin crawling as they can get. Um, I was wondering if you had, you know, you go around and talk, or previous COVID, you go around and talk to people who've been through events such as that and other things. Specifically, athletes, I think of hockey. I I traveled around and uh, played a lot of hockey and lived in billet houses and that kind of thing. Is there advice you can give parents to ensure or help shield or whatever you think the word is so that a Graham James doesn't happen? Well, I always say go with your gut, 
if you see something that makes you feel uncomfortable, then, you know, go with your gut, you know, um, these guys are master manipulators of the system. You know, the grooming, the grooming process starts with the adults. It doesn't start with the kids. It starts with the adults. So these guys infiltrate themselves into kids organizations first and foremost, right? Then they gain the trust of all of the people who make the decisions, right? Then once they have that, uh, power, then they start grooming the kids. And the last thing in the process of all of that is, you know, kids get molested and it's a long drawn out process. So it doesn't just happen overnight. No, no, no. It's, it's calculated. It's manipulated. It's, it's all of that, you know, but you know, for me, you know, I've been able to do lots of unpacking of all of this right and um you know i actually look at graham james as a gift in my life now because without that experience you know i'm not in this space i'm not in this platform i'm not if because without the experience you know I'm, i'm not an expert you know what i mean and so you know the universe picked me because because of the greater good and the bigger picture, right? You know? And so, you know, I look at it completely different. I don't look at it as a burden anymore. I don't look at it as, you know, uh, I don't feel sorry for myself. I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. You know, I, uh, um, when I told my story is when my life changed completely, 180 degree turn. You know, and that I become this safe place for people to talk about, you know, what happened to them, you know, and, you know, that's the way I look at it, you know, and I've been given uh, a second chance at life. Um, You know, like I said, if I would have pulled the trigger, I wouldn't be here, but I didn't for a reason, right? Everything happens for a reason. You know, none of this was coincidence. And, you know, when I, when I started to go down my spiritual journey, you know, these things kept, were kept showing to me, you know, the, the humility, the surrender, you know, the understanding, making sense of it all, right. All of that. And, uh, you know, what I always tell people is if you're in pain, that's a sign from the universe that you have an opportunity to change your life because the universe will keep putting lessons in front of us until we get them right and you know when i stopped drinking and and was able to think with a clear head those lessons i i i I could catch them and i and i looked at them as learning opportunities and opportunities to change you know and uh yeah so don't always look at things that happen to you as a burden look at them as you know preparation for the next phase of your life or the next healing opportunity that's going to be presented to you um, because the universe does it, you know, and if you believe in something greater than yourself is running this show, um, you know, life gets easier, right? You know, like I used to live in drama all the time, 
I don't live in drama anymore. And people that bring drama into my life are gone because I just want to have peace and joy and happiness and love and care and respect. And, you know, all those things we learned growing up in Western Canada, the, the, that's the heart of who we are. You know, we respect people, we work hard, we give back, right? You know, that's, that's the core of who we are and that's being taken away from us. So yeah, of course we're going to be upset. Of course we're going to push back. Right. Yeah. You know, so, you know, so if you're listening to this, you're conservative, you know, it's time to fight back. It's time to use your voice. You know, don't be afraid. You know, racism is just a word. You know, if you're not acting it out, then you're not a racist. So when somebody calls you that, it's like water off a duck's back, right? You know, I know that I've been directly involved in raising over $100 million in charity for all kinds of different organizations. You know, that's not who I am. Who they're telling me I am and who I am is completely different. So I don't buy, I don't buy the propaganda. I don't, I don't buy into it. You know, I live, I live in a free country, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I think it's super powerful what you talk about. Yeah. Um, one other thing on the Graham James thing Mm -hmm. is I asked what parents can do. I had, um, it was kind of, it was an, a very eye-opening experience. I had uh, Ambrose Furcus come on here and I don't expect you to know who that is. He's a kid from the area and he talked about his uh, billet dad trying to molest him. And, and uh, the next day he called his parents and it all came out, whatever. But he, he talked about it on the podcast and um, tons of people had no idea. And it was the first time I'd ever, you know, I, I, I think I've said it before. I played a lot of hockey and I, I almost feel lucky now. Um, I must've fallen in the right spots not to be put in any of those situations because. Well, you, you had never, great, you had great parents, right? That's, yeah. You know, they, they, they prey on people like me where my parents both struggled with addiction and I was looking for attention and, you know, I wasn't getting any attention and, you know, they, they love, they love broken homes. They love divorced parents, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Right. That's, that's well, what they look. And honestly, I, I think uh, Ambrose by all accounts comes from a very good family. I think yeah. The, yeah. the thing and, that. And the reason why is because he picked up the phone right away called. and said something's wrong. Yeah. Right. It was a guy like me. I, I want to get to the NHL. I can't call my parents. And I knew if I would have told First of all, end of my hockey career, because I'm a shit disturber. Nobody would have believed me, right? You think nobody would have believed you? Back in that time? Because he had, he had, he was a hockey news man of the year. Yeah, I know. It's fucked so up. Think, think, think about that. Think who about that for believe? a second. Who are you going to believe? Here's, here's where I struggle with. And I'm sure this has been brought up to you before. The hockey man of the year. There had to have been a fucking unbelievable amount of people, grown-ups. I'm not talking kids, because kids probably too who got it. But grown-ups who went, went, hey, he's just kind of an odd duck. Like there had to. Like the, oh, yeah. So they it's do. crazy to me that back then even, 
nobody would say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they knew, well, you know, the stories are endless, right? Look at all the stuff that's come out since Sheldon came out first. You know, the Catholic church has to talk about it every day. Jerry Sandusky. Yeah. They would, you know what I mean? Like, and you know, it's a, it's a $150 billion industry. Child trafficking is a $150 billion industry. 150, what? Child trafficking is a $150 billion industry. Proven fact, Google it. $150 billion for child trafficking. Yep. So people are buying kids to have sex with them. Oh, fuck. That's not going to let me sleep easy at night. That's fucked up. That's why you got to have that conversation with your kids. Make sure when they're on their cell phones that they're not doing shit that shouldn't, because that's where these guys hang out. That's where they hang out. 750,000 pedophiles online Every second of every day. What? 750,000? pedophiles online every day. All day long. Oh. So that, that, that documentary out of the shadows yeah is real 100% real so what would you say to a kid what advice would you give to a kid that's listening to this and has either you know the first grown up has tried mm-hmm. what advice do you give that person well, tell an adult like right away or phone the police or, you know, like they're out there, they're looking, they're looking for, for messed up kids and they're going to shower them with attention and, you know, give them money and you name it. Right. They know the deal. They know how to do this. It's scary. It's scary stuff. Right. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, uh, I got three, three kids under four. So I, well, four in a bit, he just turned four and I just, it's something that weighs on my mind. Not that, um, they're in a situation, but at some point the statistics are saying at some point they're going to have somebody try or be around somebody who certainly wants to. Well, here's another step. One in three girls. One in five boys will have some sort of unwanted sexual experience before the age of 18. So that's one quarter of the whole entire population of the world that's going to have an experience such as mine. So now I really am lucky, right? Like, I mean, fuck. So so start talking to your kids like now, you know, tell them – Talk about what healthy touch is, what unhealthy touch isn't. You know what I mean? And then tell them, you know what? You can come to me and tell me anything. I will never judge you. I will never, you know, be mad. Nothing. Right? 
because you got to build that trust in them because, you know, this is the world that we live in. You know? Shit. Right? So anytime, anytime any of these allegations that come out about, you know, sexual abuse, I know they're, I know they're true because the stats don't lie. And I think that the stats are extremely, extremely conservative. You know, I've been, I've been doing this for 11 years now. That one in three, one in five stat, bullshit. As many boys get molested as little girls do. There is no distinction. And yet you want to meet Graham James again? Or you, not meet him. You, you said you, you don't have any... Like, it's I read about, that... It's not about me. I think it's because we don't understand the pedophile brain and how it works. I think it's a great learning opportunity so that, you know, you're asking me these questions. What do I look for? Yeah. He's going to tell us. Yeah. He's going to tell us in an interview exactly what he's looking for. Has that never been done? No. Nobody's ever sat down and done, you know, they got the, I don't know, fuck the criminal minds, right? Where they go through the mind of a serial killer is the one yeah. that come, pops to my brain. They've never done that for a pedophile. I have, have you seen anything? Yes, never really searched for anything. Right. So unless you search for it, you don't know, right? So. I'm going to tell you, I read that chapter and I, I, I could have grabbed a baseball bat and strolled yeah. across to the other side of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was the same way, you know, but you know, like I said, look at all the good that's come out of True. what happened to me. Right. Took a so, lot of fucking bad though, Theo, you, your book. I mean, man, at times I went, I can't believe you survived all that. Yeah. But I did because there was a, there was a higher purpose. Right. There was a higher purpose and I just needed to find it. That's all. Right. You know, hmm. and that's the thing, like, you know, there's not enough of these conversations that happen. Like the conversation we're having right now, it doesn't happen because people are afraid to talk about, you know, what happened to them. But you know what I tell people? You're in the majority, not the minority. If you suffer from mental illness, guess what? You're in the majority, not the minority. You know, if you have an addiction problem, you're definitely not in the majority or the minority. You know, and those of us who've experienced sexual abuse and mental health and addiction issues, guess what? We're the healers on this planet. I'm a healer. I help people heal. And if I didn't have the experience, I couldn't help anybody heal. Well, I, well, I'll put me on the opposite side of that coin. I, I listened to you talk about it and I just, I've never been put in a situation like that. In saying that as time goes on and people hear Ambrose's episode and, you know, I'm sure people hear this episode and uh, I've heard you talk about it, about me too. If I've had people stop me now in Lloyd and some of them closer than I would have ever surmised and say, well, and talk about what happened. Yeah. Blows my fucking brain away. Like, it's just yeah. like, mm -hmm. I had no clue. Like I had a buddy in Moose Jaw uh, who was involved with the team. 
And, uh, you know, we became friends and, you know, I sort of started exposing him to, you know, what I was doing. And as soon as people knew that him and I were hanging around, he said in Moose Jaw, he has, it's been unbelievable how many people have come up to him and told them their story because he was associated with me. It's unbelievable. Because people just want to talk about this stuff, but there's, you know, we haven't created a safe space in society to talk about this stuff. And so every day we fight stigma. Like I fight stigma every day, you know? Is it getting better then though? Like yeah, is it's, it... it's way better than it was, but we still got 200 miles to go. Right? Because, you know, revealing what happened is, is, is the first step. There's like, you know, you spend the rest of your life healing. Right. That's why I stay uh, when I stand up on stage, I say to people, I'm in therapy for the rest of my life. And you know what people do? Like they, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm going, I've experienced so much trauma in my life that this is for the rest of my life. And I'm completely okay with that because the more I put, more I put myself into therapeutic environments, the more I heal, the happier I get, the more peace I have the calmer I am, all those things. But there's this stigma around therapy and treatment. Is there something wrong with me? So when you break your arm, you go to the hospital and they fix it. If you experience trauma, you're broken. You need to be, you need to go fix it. But it's not as easy as just a bone healing. This is emotional healing. Right? And emotional healing takes a long time to, you know. And I think you, you've touched on it several times. Sometimes the healthiest thing you can do for yourself is just talking about it. Yes. Talking in a safe place. A safe place. And there are not as many safe places as one would think, or at least you build it up in your brain that it's not as big as, or um, not as many as you think. Because you're afraid to be judged. Yeah. But you find those safe places uh, where you can just say what's on your mind. And usually if you, well, not usually, hopefully, hopefully listeners or people have uh, an individual or several that they can talk openly with without being Mm -hmm. judged because it is the most freeing thing in the world. Yeah. It's, it is such a huge step, you know, and I've seen it live hundreds of thousands of times. I've seen it live where people come up to me and tell their story. And when they leave, their eyes are brighter. They have a little more bounce in their step and they don't feel alone anymore. Right. And as human beings, like we weren't put on this earth to suffer in silence. We're put on this earth to be in relationship with each other and help each other get through the most difficult times in our life. And that's the stigma part is who am I going to tell? Right. Where am I going to go? So, you know, 
that's 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 basically what I do every single day is try to create safe spaces and safe environments to people to get this shit off their chest, you know? Because if you don't, it's going to affect your kids. Yeah. And then your kids are going to be traumatized. And then they're going to grow up and traumatize their kids and so on and so forth. And, you know, a never ending is, cycle, a never ending is, cycle. You know, this is too, you know, Adam and Eve ate the apple. That's trauma right there. So we're dealing with 20,020 years or 2020 years of trauma. You know, all these Antifa people out there and black lives matter people that are causing shit. So it's, that's trauma. You want to see trauma? That's trauma. That's their trauma being acted out. That's all that is. It's not about the Black Lives Matter. It's not about Antifa. It's all people that have been traumatized. And they've suppressed their anger and sadness their whole entire life. And now there's no consequences. So now they're all out acting, their, acting out their anger and rage. That's exactly what's happened. Because nobody's ever dealt with their trauma. Think about that. Nobody knows how to deal with their trauma. Exactly. Because there's no safe spaces. I think there's, there's, an underground, there's an underground of of these people out there that are that are doing this work, but it's not mainstream. And when it becomes mainstream, then we're going to see an incredible awakening of, of healing all over the planet. But right now, it's all underground because everybody's afraid. Mm. <clears throat> it's, I don't know. Social media is an absolutely amazing thing. Yeah. That gets used 99% of the time for the wrong thing. Yep. Yep. The video, the video of, uh, you know, the, the videos of good things happening go up the ranks, right? Like they, they get promoted. But the, when the shit's the worst, like think about it. What is it? Karen. Karen's the, the trendy word name for any woman or any man who does something racist, right? So then they make it seem like that's on every corner block. Meanwhile, we're all going, well, I, I just come back to, to my town of Lloydminster. I know in the town of Lloyd and surrounding community, the farming community, there's such amazing people here. It's just amazing Unbelievable. people. Unbelievable. Well, that, that night we came up and did that thing for mental health. 600 people bought tickets for a mental health event. I stood on stage and went, holy fuck. Like, yeah. oh my God. Like I, I said, I, I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. I uh, sadly missed, I happily missed that, I guess. I was supposed to, I was supposed to be there sitting, uh, interviewing you guys, helping uh, interview you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But our, but our third was born that identity, that day. Oh. Well, there you go. There you go. That's so awesome. It wasn't meant to happen that time, but here we sit anyways. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's happening slowly, but surely, you know. Well, it has to happen, right? Yep. Because. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I tell you what. I, I let's go into the final segment. I, I feel like I've just watched uh, 
a movie that's unnerved me. And me and the wife back in college had a, a, a tradition after we'd watch something that was a little bit uh, unnerving. And <laughs> you'd watch Family Guy and have a few chuckles, and then you could go about your day or your night a little better. My go-to was the Nutty Professor. Nutty Professor. Hey, that was good. Little Eddie Murphy. Yeah. There's well, some funny, funny <laughs> shit in that movie. <laughs> well, it, we'll go to the Crude Master Final Five. A shout out to Heath and Tracy McDonald. They've been huge supporters of the podcast. Five questions, Theo. Yep. We'll try and keep it light. Um, I have to say this probably for the 10th time, uh, or I'll say it 10 more times, is I really appreciate you coming on and talking about some stuff and some stuff that really a lot of people are talking about behind closed doors. So thanks for that. But let's go into the Final Five. Who is the greatest player you ever faced on ice? Uh, and that comes from Mike Nealand off of Twitter. It's got to be Gretz. Has to be sure. Gretz? Yeah, Mario's close, and I know both of them very, very well. I go to Mario's fantasy camp every year in Pittsburgh, and, you know, he's one of my top ten favorite human beings on the planet. But, uh, you know, um, two completely different body builds, two yeah. different ways they played the game. but. <clears throat> um, you know, I just, I just have, I just loved uh, playing against Gretz because you had to be, you had to think like him, and that was hard to do because he, he thought the game on a, you know, a level that nobody, nobody's ever, you know, achieved. You know, when you when you think about, you know, there's some NBA guys who don't have three thousand career points, and they get two and three points for every shot they take. He's got 3,000 points. Yeah, but Theo, he played in a different era. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They were hooking and holding and grabbing and you name it, you know? you got a podcast. If you uh, could have anyone you wanted, anyone, who would you want to come on and sit down and have a chat with? Trudeau. Really? Mm hmm Think that'd ever happen? You no way he'd sit Never. down across from him, would you? No. No. What would you ask, what would be your first question if you if Trudeau showed up, said, Hey Theo, how's it going today? I would ask him about his trauma. You think there's something there then? <laughs> there's no question. I grew up. I grew up with a mom who was um, depressed her whole entire life. Caused me trauma. His mom, severe mental illness. Right? You know the. You know the thing about ego is eventually, like, if you lead with ego, eventually everybody resents you and hates your guts. But if you lead with compassion, humility, and, you know, empathy and all these things, people will follow you to the ends of the earth, you know? And I used to be one of those ego guys, full of myself, fucking asshole. I was an asshole, you know? Nobody, nobody followed me. And then I switched, became compassionate, became a listener, uh, all those things. That's why I have such a great following is people know what's truly in my heart. And, and I just want you to heal. That's it. That's all I want for people. 
And if I can be that conduit that connects the dots, man, that helps me heal, right? Helps, helps me heal and it helps me, it reminds me of where I once was and that the possibility of change is, is, is uh, achievable. Right? We, we have the most traumatized leaders, most traumatized leaders in the history of our planet. Just because I know, because I've been in the psychology space for, you know, 15 years. Hmm. God, if, if that ever happens, I'll be, the, I'll be the first one downloading it. Be the most listened to podcast in the history of the planet. <laughs> What do you still got left on your bucket list? I want to play in a senior tour event on the senior tour. Golf. Golf. Yep. Yep. I'm a scratch golfer, so. How about this one? I, 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 applied, I applied for an exemption at last year's Shaw Charity Classic. They turned me down, so. Fuckers. I know you uh, you uh, you play music, and I think you're opening tomorrow night for a guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm Gord opening up for Gord Bamford. Yeah. So, so Gord, I met Gord at the Flames Poker Tournament. Uh, geez, probably, fuck, it's got to be over ten years ago, and uh, and so he, I told him that I was doing music, and so he, you know, he sort of encouraged me, helped me out. I sent him some songs and stuff, and then he started. <laughs> excuse me, inviting me to his, uh, his big charity event. He has in Red Deer every year. And, uh, and then we just became really good buddies ever since. And, uh, and so whenever he's around Calgary or whatever, he always asks me if I want to come up and sing a tune. So tomorrow, um, <laughs> he, uh, he's putting on a charity event for our foundation, the Breaking Free That's Foundation. Awesome, yeah. And so I'm going to open up the show tomorrow night. So with one of my original songs. So what, who, who, if you could, if you could open for any band or group or musician, who would it be? Who would you want to walk out on stage and play right before? Oh, man. Jeez. Remember a guy named Buck Owens? Buck Owens. No, I, I can't sit here and bullshit you that I do. Hey, you know who Dwight Yoakam is? Absolutely. Okay, so Dwight Yoakam was heavily influenced by Buck Owens. Oh, it looks like I know who I'm listening to in the truck after this is done. Yeah, and uh, so I grew up listening to Buck Owens because my dad and my uncle sang all these Buck Owens tunes, and I friggin' loved it. And uh, uh, go on YouTube and, and Google Buck Owens' Made in Japan is my favorite song of all time because my, my uncle used to sing it all the time, and I just I love, I just love the song. And, uh, and so, yeah, I would... It would be unbelievable. Buck is dead now, but, you know, that's why I, I grew up listening to, uh, you know, Johnny Cash. Um, you Legend. Know, those, those old hard school partying dudes, you know, like Willie and Waylon and, you know, all yeah. those guys. So, yeah. Final question for you. In the book, Going to Nogno, you guys get to take, is it true you get to take the Rolling Stones plane? Yeah. What the hell was the Rolling Stones plane like? <laughs> massive it was massive and you know what's funny we we they had a they have they had a big bedroom in the plane right on the top level okay so that's where we did all of our meetings our power play penalty killing line meetings 
yeah, it was all it was all up there. So yeah. How the hell did that? Go? Then the whole plane, the whole plane was all first class seats. So it was it was ridiculous. Yeah. Who had the hookup of Rolling Stones playing? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Probably Gretz. I'm thinking Gretz. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, I got to say, man, this has been uh, I'm, this has been a lot of fun. I really, really appreciate you coming on here. Um, I think at some point we're going to have to sit down and do this again. But regardless, if it doesn't happen, I really do appreciate you hopping on this time and, and spending, you know, and we talked about 45 minutes. It's been a hell of a lot longer than that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I'm very passionate about what I do, you know. Um, whether that's mental health, addictions, trauma, politics, whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about, you know, helping people heal and, and, uh, you know, I've, I've dedicated the rest of my life to doing that. So. Well, thank you. I know, much. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to, you know, the be, be in pain, you know, not physical pain, but emotional pain. And, you know, I know what it's like and I and I know that there's so many people out there that you know are are that way and so you know if I can help in any way you know I'm more than happy to do it. Final one for you now that I'm staring at it. What's Benny's skate sharpening? I've been wondering this the entire podcast. Your hat. Ah, so uh there's a guy that helps out at Mario's fantasy camp. Okay. Uh who does all the skate sharpening and his name is Benny. Well, shout out just, to Benny. And I love this. I love, like, I love the old school. Trucker you know? hat. Yeah. So Benny skate sharpening brings up a lot of different conversations. Ah, so, cool. Well, yeah. thanks again, uh, Theo. Really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, man. I appreciate you uh, asking me to do this and hi to everybody in Lloyd Minster. <laughs> Hey folks, thanks again for joining us today. If you just stumble on the show and like what you hear, please click subscribe. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, a new guest will be sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time. How's everybody doing? Did you enjoy that? I assume if you uh, waited this long, you either really, really want to hear who the guest 100 is or you enjoyed that and uh if you're still hanging out you're waiting for the clue and i'm here to tell you this week or this episode i'm not going to give you a clue instead i'm going to give a shout out to uh ken and jen rutherford who just had their sixth kid on sunday night so huge shout out to ken and jen you guys are awesome parents awesome human beings um so happy for you guys happy everybody you know came out of it healthy and happy i look forward to meeting the little guy And for the rest of you still listening, um, you're in for a real treat. I sit down with the 100th guest on Wednesday. I don't think you're going to be able to uh, calm me down. I probably am not going to sleep Tuesday night. And if you want to get in on the uh, $100 or $200 gift card to Factory Sports or the round of four golf and two carts, uh, round for four of golf and two carts to Sandy Beach. Head to uh, social media, hit up the podcast, tag me, the uh, hashtag Who's One Hundred with your guess for one hundred. Each post will get you in 
uh, and the draw will be made. You'll hear it at the end of the 100th episode. You'll hear who won. Um, But once again, have a great week, and we will catch up to you Wednesday. Until then.